Hi, I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokesman.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga University School of Law. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also a film critic for Spokane Public Radio. And welcome to Movies 101, that show that doesn't shy away from the eclectic, not to mention electric or even selective when it comes to our mission of seeking out great cinema. This week, our search took a historical turn as, one, we checked out The Teacher's Lounge, a 2023 German language film that is one of the five nominees for Best International Feature Film. And two, we turned to Netflix to see the documentary The Greatest Night in Pop, which portrays the efforts to corral in 1985 arguably the most impressive array of vocal talents to record the song We Are the World, aimed at raising money for African famine relief. Let's begin by heading to a German secondary school. It's there that the new teacher, Carla Novak, played by Leone Banesh, finds herself in a situation that starts out confusing and gradually evolves into something ever more complex and ultimately nightmarish. It begins when Novak, who seems to have a tight relationship with her middle school students and who equally seems to have a firm grasp of ethics, takes a questionable action that ends up causing trouble not just with a single person but ultimately the whole school. Teachers everywhere should be able to relate to what Novak goes through, though what German-born writer-director Ilker Chatak is going for has far larger applications. The Teacher's Lounge, which is a nominee for Best International Feature, is a riveting study of how doing the right thing is subjective and, at any rate, is never any sort of guarantee that justice will ultimately ensue. The Teacher's Lounge follows in a new tradition of showing things behind the scenes as they actually are in the teaching profession. So earlier this year, we had the holdovers with Paul Giamatti, and he is vexed by a challenging group of students. But nothing compares to trying to herd a group of sixth graders in a classroom. And so we have our new teacher, Ms. Novak, everyone is known by Mr., Ms., etc. in this particular film. At one point, we discovered that she's originally from Poland, and she arrives to take over this classroom, and she's all fresh-faced and enthusiastic, and she knows exactly what she's going to do in the teacher's lounge, or more important, in the classroom. But little does she know that she is going to be stymied at every turn. So every time she tries to bring something new to her students in the classroom, they react in ways that she seemingly didn't anticipate. But perhaps more important in the teacher's lounge is her colleagues who provide the most problematic encounters that she has. I mean, early on in the film, we find out that there has been a theft that's been occurring at the school. And in an attempt to figure out who's doing it, the teachers decide to focus on the young student council reps and try to get them to tell who they think has been committing the theft. And they accuse a Turkish immigrant Ali. And so there's this whole sort of plot line that revolves around that particular encounter. But just this sense of hopelessness pervades this film. And I really liked the performances of the kids in particular because it just felt real. I mean, having a 12-year-old grandson, we've seen some of this (laughs) people from this age group in action. And even though it's a very diverse group and they're very idealistic Gen Zers, 
And poor Ms. Novak is just trying to get her footing in this Lord of the Flies scenario. (laughs) And I use that example not because of what the students do, but more because of what her colleagues do. Yeah, I mean, this is almost allegorical in a way. I suppose you could apply this scenario to any workplace setting or any setting where people are kind of grouped Institutional. Yeah, yeah, right. Because it's less about who is committing the theft, who is the thief, and who is guilty and who isn't. And it's more about what happens when a community or a collective or a workplace experiences seeds of doubt, when those seeds of doubt are sown because it leads to- lack of trust, right. It leads to distrust. And then people start taking sides and then there's ultimately a breakdown and any sense of civility is just kind of done away with. And that's basically what The Teacher's Lounge is about. And as a film, I mean, I was thinking a lot about the work of the Dardenne brothers from France who have made movies like La Enfant and Two Days, One Night. I thought they were Belgian. Um, Belgian, excuse me. But a lot of their films take place in France. And I was also thinking about that French film, The Class, from like a decade or so ago, because all of those movies are kind of fly-on-the-wall sort of narratives. They sort of throw you into this environment that's already been established. And usually the central drama hinges not on like a big explosive piece of action or incident. It's usually one little thing that somebody does, one choice that somebody makes that seems like the right thing to do in that mm-hmm. moment and then spirals out of control. It's and almost the drama like an academic film noir. Yeah, in a way. And yeah. I think, though, my issue with The Teacher's Lounge is that I think the tension does build. It's almost unbearable at times <laughs> because we do start to wonder, did this teacher – who does have kind of the same idealism that her students do, as you mentioned, did she do the right thing? And we waver. We go back and forth on it. I think that's what the film wants us to do. But I think the drama builds to a less than satisfying conclusion. And I think things happen in the third act of the movie that felt more trite and more obvious and more plot dependent than anything that had come before them. There's also a device in the form of the school newspaper, which felt weirdly out of step for our current times. I was thinking- Where it would have been social media-based. Or something. Like, I don't know. It just felt like maybe in a different decade, maybe Germany is different. Maybe they still value newspapers in middle schools. But I thought that whole scenario went down in a really kind of clunky, awkward way, although I understood what it was doing there. So- I don't want to say it didn't work for me because everything about it, like the technical side of things is great. The performances are excellent. But I was left a little wanting at the end of this because it gives you so much to think about. And then it just kind of stops. Mm-hmm. I was frustrated by how this wrapped itself up. Yeah, I, I it felt, I felt up. pretty much the same way. I thought the movie is expertly done, expertly acted, particularly by the children, but also Leona Bennett. She's really good. Actress, I, know, I don't think I've never seen ever before. seen her before. Yeah. She was really very good. I mean, and when you talk about anxiety in the film, there's a scene in which after she meets with parents and, you know, she's confronted, she just leaves and she goes into the restroom and pulls out a plastic bag, empties the garbage out of it and sits there and breathes into it. And I was almost doing the same thing (laughs) when I was watching the movie because it just, it is so intense. But as you say, there's an ending that just kind of left me like, "Eh." but then later on thinking about that, I thought, well, okay, I don't know how you would end that movie. I don't know what he was supposed to do, but that does not detract from everything that led up to it. So I end up liking the movie a lot, even if I did walk out of the theater thinking, hmm, there should have been something more there at the end. 
Well, and from the faculty side of things, I mean, you can see how easily things can go awry or can get out of sync. And then what do you do? Because at one point, Ms. Novak gets sideways with the students, with their parents, with her colleagues, with the school administration, with even the person who's supposed to be her buddy on the faculty. And so that seemed very realistic in many ways because, again, it's allegorical. I mean, I think in modern times, if you make a misstep, it's writ large potentially. And how do you escape from that or how do you deal with that? And so I think that I really like this movie and I liked the ending, like especially the very ending. Dan oftentimes has issues with the last 20 seconds of a film. and. This, and and this, this one, one was metaphorical. Right. I mean, I mean, this one worked for me. And maybe it was just because of my closer identification, not to being in a classroom with sixth graders, but just being in a classroom and being in an academic setting. So I don't know. I can honestly say, though, it does create tension. <laughs> I was calmer. We actually went with a group of people and one person right. left because they were like, I yeah. do yeah. not yeah. need this. Well, I, yeah. and, and I think that, you know, when you're talking about the teacher's lounge and you're talking about sort of how these kind of battle lines are drawn and it eventually becomes her versus everyone else, there is nuance there. It doesn't feel unbelievable. Like you would think maybe in a scenario like this, she might have one ally. And she kind of does in in a couple of the kids, actually. They're the one. It's interesting. And I think this probably would be true. The kids see the nuance more than the adults do on both the good and bad side of things. But the way that the chips kind of start falling into place, you think, I guess that is probably how that would happen. And then my issue with the final part is less how it ends than how it plays out. It just no, felt I, like, I understand they had, what you mean. They, like they were solving right. problems instead right. of creating more nuance. Well, and the other conflicts. thing that we haven't really talked about is, I mean, I've talked about all these different cohorts. There's also a staff cohort. And at one point, this becomes more of a class yes. you know, focused yep. drama. Yes. And so I don't know. Uh, again, not for everyone, but <laughs> I really appreciated it. Yeah. And that was our discussion of The Teacher's Lounge. This is Movies 101. It's time to take a short break. Before we go, remember that you can access podcasts at Movies 101 by going online at SpokanePublicRadio.org. While there, check out the individual reviews that Nathan and I write. Don't do it now, though, because we'll be right back to talk about the greatest night in pop. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. And we're back. This is Movies 101, and I'm your host, Dan Webster. During the first half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I talked about the Oscar-nominated German film The Teacher's Lounge. Let's now move to something completely different, namely the documentary feature The Greatest Night in Pop, a title that may sound like a bit of an exaggeration, but, well, listen up and maybe you'll agree. It was Bob Geldof, the Irish singer-songwriter whose political leanings began the first series of charity concerts featuring mostly British and Irish big-name musical talents, namely the 1984 Band-Aid concert. 
Taking up from there, the American singer and social activist Harry Belafonte wanted to get Americans involved in a similar kind of event. With the help of producer Ken Cragen and with Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie writing what would become the event's anthem, We Are the World, the project ended up as a recording session that featured a who's who of American talent of the time. But as documentary filmmaker Bowden wins Netflix film shows, it wasn't easy to pull off, what with conflicting schedules, not to mention conflicting egos, making every decision seem insurmountable. Even more amazing, it took place on the same night, January 28, 1985, as the annual American Musical Awards. And Nguyen manages to capture enough in-person and archival footage to show us how it all ensued. We've had a lot of look-back musical documentaries in recent years, from the long-lost Amazing Grace to the George Michael study Wham! But The Greatest Night in Pop is one of the only ones boasting a bona fide suspenseful narrative, along with some examples of real personality quirks of immensely talented people. Well, this documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop, is sort of symptomatic of all of the things that I have come to dislike about this particular brand of made-for-streaming documentary. And as you've mentioned, we've seen a lot of them recently. It, unfortunately, has nothing to say about its subject beyond, isn't it crazy that this thing happened at all? And it pretty much breaks a sweat anytime it even threatens to say anything critical about We Are the World, about any of its participants, about how much money actually went to addressing African famine, about the performative nature of a bunch of super rich people singing a song and then claiming they made a difference. So I would say as a piece of cultural commentary or criticism, I'd give this maybe a D. However, <laughs> this is so squarely within the realm of my personal interests that I can't deny I had a blast watching this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering where you were it's going. It's not good, but it's on that it's front. Entertaining. But it's entertaining. I mean, as a piece of archival narrative storytelling, it's very effective. And I think it was really smart to structure this documentary as a movie about logistics. Because the central question of The Greatest Night in Pop is not, is We Are the World a bad song? Which the answer is, yes, it's a very <laughs> bad song. The question is, how do we get so many famous people in the same room at the same time? That's and you're right. right. Even though we know the result, there is kind of a nail-biting tension of, are they going to pull it off? And mm -hmm. even though we know the answer. And so my lizard brain sort of won out over my critic brain here because watching the archival footage, because we also have to mention that while they were learning the song and then recording it, they were filming the music video at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. they're under these hot lights and there's this camera crew documenting everything. And the camera crew picks up some amazing stuff that we can dig into. But the fact that they had this archival footage, which has been used in the past, there was like a making of documentary back when the song originally came out. They have so much to work with here. And so watching all of these people in their prime, hearing some of them talk about it and reflect on it now, including, you know, Huey Lewis and Cindy Lauper and Lionel Richie himself, who was a co-producer on this movie, That's which is right. maybe why it's not as critical as it should be. All of that stuff is just really fun, even though I've had We Are the World stuck in my head for three weeks now. And I would desperately love for it to be hey, you out are, of my head. You are talking about the ninth best-selling single song of all time. Well, as we know in the movie world, being a box office champ does not guarantee quality. <laughs> and that's certainly the case with We Are the World. And I would agree with the okay, last. No, no further comments. But <laughs> I 
appreciated learning more about the backstory here because, you know, we had the whole Band-Aid concert. And I like the fact that Harry Belafonte sort of took the lead and said, hey, we as black folks need to get involved in this, you know. Because it is about Africa. Right. So he says something like, we need to save our own people. At least that's what Lionel Richie reports. But it's the collaboration between Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson that I really found interesting because I, you know, how's this going to work? And then they kept trying to bring Stevie Wonder in and he wouldn't respond to them. And they were like, what's going on? And then when he shows up for the actual, like, filming and so forth or the actual he thinks they're going to write the song there they're (laughs) like Stevie we already wrote it what what (laughs) and maybe his contribution would have made it a better song but it is a catchy tune it is and so we get to see I mean you mentioned some of the people who were in the movie but to see Bruce Springsteen flies from Buffalo, New York, in order to attend this. and this On the was, last night of his Born in the USA tour. Right. right. Yeah. So imagine that. And you mentioned and his you voice know, Cindy Lauper, Sheila E. was in this. Huey Lewis has a rather significant part. And, you know, I went to one Huey Lewis concert, and Ooh, he is yes. great Love in him. concert. Love so him. I think that things start to break down a little if as it goes into the early morning hours. Yeah, Al Jarreau is hitting the bottle there. <laughs> yeah, that was, and they have yeah. to prop him up in order to sing his part. But And, and seeing, Dylan, they had to prop Dylan up too to get him to do his oh, part. Oh, yeah. And I think that it's just watching them trying to put this together, Nathan, as you said, that is really the key thing here. And talking about egos, I mean, we know a lot of these people are used to having everyone pay hyperdulia to them. And then they're all similarly situated for better or for worse. And sort of when things get a little ragged. And they're caught between being who they are, you know, that self-importance that I am an artist, and Big fans because, wow, I'm Cindy Lauper. But there's Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. There's Bob Dylan. Right. Or Diana I mean, Ross. You know? Diana Ross. Diana Ross. Paul Simon. And Smokey Robinson was there. Yeah. Ray Charles was oh, there. I know. I mean, Steve Perry from Journey. Like, can mm-hmm. you imagine having to stand in front of the microphone yeah, yeah. and sing when you're, like, basically a spring chicken because you're, you know, in your 20s and you're just now blowing up. And you have to sing in front of Diana Ross well, or Dion Warwick. Mm-hmm. Like, man. And that's why I thought that space with Huey Lewis was great because he kept talking about how terrified he was (laughs) and how am I going to do this? And then they sort of changed his part and he's like, oh no. Um, I got to (laughs) harmonize? Yeah. And I think the thing about The Greatest Night in Pop is what I liked about it beyond the logistics thing that we've talked about because they were like, okay, so the American Music Awards are happening, which Lionel Richie also hosted Hosted, Then had to turn around and come into the recording studio with Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson and everyone else. That was sort of their way of getting all these people in the same room. And then I always assumed, because the music video for We Are the World is so bare bones, I just thought that they filmed that in like an afternoon. I did not realize it was a 12-hour cram sesh Mm -hmm. where everyone was drinking and sweating and stressing. But there are all these wonderful little kind of subplots and moments that they capture. interactions among... Cindy Lauper is singing and they're going... There's this weird clicking sound on the recording. What is it? And it turns out it's her nest of jewelry yeah, that she yeah. was always wearing. Or the part- and Bob Dylan gets his own wonderful little arc where yeah, yeah. he's like it's kind of a punchline now because he looks visibly uncomfortable through the mm-hmm. entire recording process. Mm-hmm. And then when it's his time to do a solo, he's like, I don't know what to do. And Stevie Wonder kind of coaches him yep. and he figures it out. And you're like you almost feel like. 
Bob Dylan's redeemed now. Like yeah. it's this. There, it's you know, there were dramatic story. highs and lows too. One of the lows, one of the sad parts, was when Sheila E. Mm-hmm. realizes that the only reason, or maybe the main reason, why she had been invited because she wasn't in the realm of the rest of these superstars A-list. was because they were hoping that her Prince friend would Prince her. would show yes. up, and so she leaves early. And that's going back to what I was talking about. Sheila E. I think is the only person in this documentary because she's interviewed for the film. Yeah, is maybe the only person that voices any criticism about the process at all because she says I felt like I was duped mm-hmm. I felt like they told me I was that used. I was going yeah. to mm-hmm. have a solo my career is just about to blow up I just performed at the American Music Awards mm-hmm. and it was all because they thought Prince would follow me to the recording studio and well, she he, knew he wasn't going to show and up and he yeah. didn't and I think Springsteen who's also interviewed has one line where he says basically you know, say what you will about the quality of the song, but it did some good. That's the extent of the criticism here. And this would have been a richer, even more compelling documentary if you'd had maybe some music historians or even other musicians sitting down and saying, let's look at this as a song. Because as a song, as you mentioned, it is an earworm. It's been stuck in my head, but it's a maudlin, syrupy, not very good song. And then also let's look into what good did this actually do? Because there have been kind of exposés and pieces about that. And we've complained about this, or maybe I've complained about it. I just wish that these kinds of documentaries were just a little more willing to sort of, I don't know, yeah. take on the actual subjects with a critical eye every once in a while. Yeah, well, uh, this is a puff it's piece. It's very much like the Wham! documentary. Yeah. So, but... You know, I think you're expecting a little too much. Let's hey, just go I still back. said I had a great time yeah. watching this. I mean, even just to see that footage of Bob I Dylan think most, again I think, squirming in between all of these other And I think most viewers will have a, a good time watching Another it. huge question that this movie does not answer. What was Dan Aykroyd doing there? Oh, yeah, exactly. We asked ourselves <laughs> the same thing. Maybe because he was a blues brother. Yeah, I believe you're right. And that was our discussion of the Netflix documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop. This is Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster. And earlier in the show, Nathan Weinbender, Murray Pat Truthart, and I discussed the Oscar-nominated German film The Teacher's Lounge. Let's take this moment to thank Cassia Fox for both producing and engineering the show. We thank you to our loyal listeners, and we invite you back next week, same time, same spot on the radio dial, and we'll again check out all the best that cinema has to offer wherever we can find it. Until then, consider these words from the late, great Jim Henson. Kids don't remember what you try to teach them, They remember what you are. You're listening to Movies 101 on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101.